As a small business owner, I've had my share of accounting, tax, bank feed, and app issues. Some could say I'm a mess, kind of like some of your clients. But as I reflect on the last three years of my business, the one app that I've had not any problems with is OnPay. It's been set it and forget it payroll. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor OnPay later in the episode. In this world, you don't get free money, people. It does not exist. You have to bust your ear and work for money. Like it, uh. Actually, the only free money there is is create a Bitcoin scam or a crypto scam and you get free money. That's probably the only free money that exists. I know. A crypto scam. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we're trying something new today, David. We are live on LinkedIn. We didn't widely advertise it, so I don't know if anyone will show up. It's more a test of the technology to see if our podcast recording platform can successfully create a live stream. It creates a lot of pressure. That means we can't do any math because we always have to edit the math out of the podcast. It means I have to, I'm going to just not say people's names because I can't pronounce names half the time. And then if I get a word that I might get stuck on, I'm just going to make up a different word. Nobody will know. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's worth it alone just because it creates the time pressure so that we can't take all day to record this episode. So we actually started on time for once. And we have a lot to talk about today, so we should probably just get into it. And follow our LinkedIn page if you want to get notified of future live streams. Cloud Accounting Podcast, search for that on LinkedIn. Follow us and you'll get notified. Hey, and we got a comment from Joshua. I had no idea LinkedIn had this function until I got the notification a minute ago. Jay, there we go. So we are at the intersection of accounting and technology and we have just educated one member of our audience about this new feature. So let's get to our episode. Lots to talk about today, David. We've got Ernst & Young splitting up the firm. We've got Bed Bath & Beyond CFO throwing himself off a 50-story building. How about you? The comedy store, you know, the famous LA comedy store, they're suing Moss Adams. The queen died. I don't know if we have to touch on this, but I feel like Accountancy Daily, Accounting Today, everybody else seemed to cover the press releases of the big four's comments about the queen. Maybe we don't have to say anything past that. I just like that happened. And some stats about who's investing in crypto, which it's a little disturbing as well. Eager to hear that. And then maybe some app news we'll get into. Okay. All right. I actually really want to start with this Bed Bath & Beyond CFO story because it actually relates to what we were talking about last week with the suicide of that Australia EY employee, because I think that's really related to stress. And based on the reporting in the Wall Street Journal, it sounds like that's what happened. Gustavo Arnal was the CFO of Bed Bath & Beyond. And the short story is that he fell to his death on September 2nd from a Manhattan skyscraper. This is during this really tumultuous period for Bed Bath & Beyond, where many of the executives in the past few years have been ousted after a failed turnaround effort. And Arnal, he was the CFO who stuck around, and he's been leading Bed Bath & Beyond from a finance perspective through 
some pretty tough times. They are closing 150 lower producing stores. They're cutting 20% of jobs across their corporate and supply chain operations. And, and, and so there's a little bit of a meme stock right now as well, right? Like, yeah, so it's the... gotten caught up in the meme stock frenzy. And then immediately after he died, there was speculation that this had something to do with the uh, a stock sale that he had scheduled where I think it was like over a million dollars of stock that he sold. And it happened to it happened to happen at the same time as this meme stock frenzy. So he actually made a lot of money. And so people have been coming after him personally. He's been getting emails from investors and from lawyers about this sale. And at the same time, he's really stressed out working crazy long hours. So Wall Street Journal went and talked to some folks I could see the stress on him, said Jan Zeiderveld, former chief executive of Avon Products, who had dinner with Mr. Arnall and his wife six weeks ago at a rooftop restaurant in Manhattan. Mr. Arnall was upbeat and animated throughout the meal, which stressed past one a which stretched past one a.m. Mr. Zeiderveld said his friend said he was under pressure at work, but didn't discuss the details. He's the sort of guy who carries the world on his shoulders, he said. And there were interviews with people who know him, uh, other people who said that he was uh, he was overwhelmed. Sue Grove, a board member who had taken over as interim chief executive officer in June, thought Mr. Arnall was overwhelmed but didn't want to replace the finance chief while the embattled retailer was in the midst of raising money. So like the short story is that he was overwhelmed, he was working crazy hours, he was telling everybody he was stressed, he was putting in 18-hour days while he worked on the company's restructuring plans, he was getting inundated with these accusations of... of uh, you know, insider trading, and it 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 all led to like he lost it, right? He he threw himself off of the building where he lived, and like this is a common problem in accounting and finance is is like we overwork ourselves, and the people around us let us do it. Like so, people knew he was stressed out. They knew he needed a break. He was asking for a break. He wasn't getting one. Like it's it's just, this is. Go ahead. I was just saying, like I. I and unfortunately, as the economy gets tighter, I think you're going to see people get more stressed, and especially when financial issues are going on. And then Bed Bath & Beyond has not had a smooth, arguably, two or three years, right? And even like business owners, like your clients, and they, this is probably not the only suicide we'll probably hear about, unfortunately, over the, as the economy gets tight and the, that, those external pressures just really start weighing on people because, you know, it's... It's the reality, right? It's very stressful if you lose your business entirely. And then it's different because I don't like with the pandemic, there was the these rescues coming in. And I don't know if that's going to always be there for businesses going forward, just from the economy getting tight. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's disturbing yeah. and sad. We need to take care of ourselves as a profession. And I don't know, maybe there needs to be like a public awareness campaign about the pressure on accounting and finance professionals now that we've got this labor shortage, we've got this uncertain economic environment, like be kind to your people and don't overwork them. And that relates to some other stuff I want to talk about remote work and quiet quitting later on in the episode. But I want to give you the opportunity, David, to uh, talk about something that you saw in the news well, this I, week. I, when you read the articles about the the stock, because I think I saw about him, it was like a $100,000 trade or something. And you're saying that that was pre-planned. It was, there was no funny business there. Yeah, but, but, I mean, Wall Street Journal saying no evidence of any wrongdoing. Like he didn't throw, he didn't kill himself because he was going to get caught for insider trading or something like that. That's what I believe too. 
that it's not tied to him. So did you see, so maybe the week before I saw, so the Chewy founder, you know, Chewy's like the dog delivery service. I think I saw something about, because he's into the meme stock thing. So he got into the GameStop game and the other stuff. Apparently, like he bought a bunch of Bed Bath & Beyond stock, pumped it up to retail investors, and then he cashed out. So within like a 90-day period, he made hundreds of millions of dollars on yeah. Bed Bath & Beyond stock. And so like I don't know, if is that? T- did you see anything about, like when you're reading the articles or tying into the investigation, did anything about that pop up? Well, so Arnold got kind of caught. It, on Twitter it looks right like now. I'm not finding it. It looks like Arnold got caught up in that because the stock got pumped up, and he happened to have the sale when it was being pumped up. But he wasn't involved in any of this meme stock stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was taking the he, brunt of the orchestration, even though he didn't. He was just trying yeah, to bust yeah, his yeah. ass and be the CFO. Yeah, he was getting he was getting some of the blame. He was just working his butt off, and it you know he got blamed for that too, right? So hey, I want to give a shout out to Marcus Mir who's in the chat. Thank you, Marcus, for watching. Appreciate you. Do you want to talk about the comedy store? Tell I mean, me a f- joke, David. You're in LA. You're in Hollywood. Like, this yeah. is your, your scene. So the yeah. comedy store is suing Moss Adams because they claim that they missed out on $8.5 million of COVID relief funds. So Moss Adams, the accounting firm, is getting sued by the comedy store. The, the big, They're like the biggest chain, right? Or one of them in comedy. That's correct. So apparently... Because of COVID, they probably weren't open. They had yeah. lost 90% of their business, this article is talking about. This is the uh, Los Angeles Times. The article doesn't have very specific timeline dates, but it kind of does. And that's what's very confusing about this because we were what? With April of 2020, pandemic really started. Yeah. So apparently, at some point in this process, the internal controller or the temporary acting controller of the comedy store Harold uh, Breslow and the chief executive Peter Shore, this they determined like, hey, we're eligible for some funds, and then they needed help to navigate the application process. So they contact Moss Adams in July of 2021. I don't know what they were doing for the rest of the pandemic, but sometime in July of 2021, they reached out to Moss Adams. Moss Adams kind of punted them to like, hey, we got it, we got our SBA guy. Right, um, I'm not going to say the name. So, it's it's an accountant at Moss Adams. Okay, the the, all, the expert in all things SBA who handles these loans and this paperwork. So then, apparently, somewhere between this conversation in July and the deadline of, I'm assuming it was August 31st. I don't know what the exact deadline was, but August in 2021, there was a deadline. Maybe this is the what's the shuttered venues grant? Maybe that's what what shut down then. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. There yeah. were. We were talking about that. Yeah, it was a deadline so some, for that. So, yeah. so they're alleging that the day after they discussed their application with Moss Adams and they went to submit it, they found out the program has already been closed. So it's it's just really strange how they're blaming Moss Adams for God knows what they were doing for 19 months, and they waited to like the last day to turn in their application, and then they found out the thing was closed. I so, guess so. so they're wait. claiming that this is because Moss Adams had gross negligence and did not tell them about the date, the filing date. Oh, so Moss Adams was already their accounting firm and they're saying they should have told us. They should have warned us. It's not clear that they were actually their firm. It's clear that they reached out to Moss Adams to help them with the application process, but it's not even clear that they were their ongoing accounting firm. Interesting. Well, good reason to always have plenty of liability insurance there because 
clients yeah, can they, and will even <laughs> clients can and will sue you. Because they're saying they misrepresented their expertise and knowledge about the relief programs because huh. they didn't communicate the date. I, I, it's just it's it's really weird like that this was even filed. Yeah, I, I don't know how huh. it's gonna play out, but I cannot imagine there's a real case here. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Canopy. Did you know that Canopy has a partnership with the IRS? This means that you can now use Canopy to pull your client transcripts. The integration is approved by the IRS and can be configured to automatically pull transcripts you can easily monitor if and when something changes. Now here's the best part. Once you have your client's transcripts, you can use Canopy's notices feature to help you resolve your client's notices. Canopy has a library of 350 plus pre-built federal and state notice templates that provide an overview of the notice type, as well as walk you through the recommended steps to resolution. And Canopy can even create and autofill your IRS response letters. Canopy also integrates with QuickBooks Online, Xero, FreshBooks, CRMs, Form Builders, Spreadsheets, Calendars, Email, and Zapier. They even have a mobile app, centralized file management, fillable PDFs, a client portal, task management, and the list goes on and on. To get a demo of Canopy and to receive a $40 Amazon gift card, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash canopy. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-A-N-O-P-Y. Well, my next big story is Ernst & Young. Well, they're not called that anymore. EY has greenlit. The leadership has greenlit the split between audit and consulting. And now it's going to be put to a vote of the 13,000 global partners. The partners are expecting multi-million dollar payouts from the split to pay for it. EY is going to raise $11 billion in a public sale of a 15% stake in the consulting company, which will also borrow some $18 million. A large par- portion of that money that they're going to borrow will be used to pay partners as well. The CEO of, or is he managing partner CEO? Anyway, the head of EY, DeCibio, is Carmen DeCibio is going to potentially make tens of millions of dollars uh, from the deal. And yeah, it's getting tons of coverage in so, the Wall so Street Journal the and the news. Like they, 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 they send out a vote and it's like, would you like a few million dollar check? And they say, yes. Is that kind of how they're going to present this to the partners? I mean, like, who's going to vote against this? Yeah, I feel like, well, and that goes to why why are they doing this, right? Like, who benefits from this? Why are they doing this? Uh, Carmen DeCivio, oh, he's the global chairman and chief executive. Got it. He said, quote, this is something that will change the industry, unquote. Uh, now, Deloitte, KPMG, PwC, they aren't going to do this. They say they plan to keep audit and consulting together. And I have to say, I'm cynical about this change in the industry because this has happened before. Uh, we've seen audit firms build up consulting practices and spin them out. That happened with uh, Arthur Anderson and Accenture. And, you know, the cynic in me also says, well, does this have anything to do with the failed audits that EY has been associated with globally over the last few years? Uh, We have covered- the threat of breakup, like that threat of breaking- And the threat of breakup anyway, right? And they audited Wirecard, Wirecard, massive fraud. They audited uh, Luck and Coffee in China, massive fraud, right? (laughs) So is this is this potentially like a way for the consulting partners to get away from that liability? Carmen DeCibio says no, that had nothing to do with it. Who knows? But like, it's not going to change anything, right? Because this has happened before. Audit firms build up consulting practices, then they spin them off and they cash out and then they can do it again. 
there's nothing to stop them from doing it again. Yeah, this is a, a, a cycle. I think Caleb Newquist informed us of that, right? It's like this yeah. cycle, they, they, it goes, the pendulum swings, they we're actually doing it, and then they pull out it back in, and we're just on that part of the cycle. It's the cash out part of the cycle again. Yep. The people who win are the partners who get the payouts. The people who lose are the people who are not yet partner, who have been trying to make partner for years, and now they're not going to get that payout, right? That's that's the cash that has now been paid out to the partners, and that opportunity has gone for them. I have an article here that I'm going to read you a quote, and then you tell me where you think this person works at. Okay. Here's the quote. Tell me who they are and where they work or okay. what their profession is. I'm usually able to get a few hours of sleep nightly when I'm at work, but I have had days where I've gone 24 hours without sleep. If I choose to, I can tell the shift manager that I'm too tired to work and she'll let me take time off to sleep. What is the profession and shift where, manager? Where do they work? Well, it's, it's, I don't know. Could it be like an Amazon warehouse? <laughs> That's a possible. Or an ER? I, but I wouldn't have brought the story if it wasn't an accountant involved here. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is not an accountant. It's, an, it's a former accountant. So Ariel Ganja, 36, she spent the majority of her 20s working as an accountant, earning just $43,000 a year. But now, three years ago, she now started working at the brothel in Nevada, where she um, <laughs> works two weeks a month at the chicken ranch. But she now makes $300,000 a year after ditching her accounting career. And how like many days a week? To, how many days? Three hundred thousand a year working two weeks, but she's on call for twenty four hours a day during those two weeks. Yeah, but, but still, it, 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 it's it's. I don't know. Wow. I, I, I thought it was interesting that like, wow, the hours kind of sound sound kind of similar as an accounting firm hours. <laughs> yeah, but only your busy season is only two weeks a year. Oh, That's man. true. This is two weeks every month, but it. it but the, really, the headline was like, I'll read the headline straight out as I didn't want to start with the headline, but sex worker makes 300000 a year after ditching accounting career for a work in a brothel. That's amazing. And That's where was she Where was she working? In, uh, it's called the Chicken Ranch. No, I know. But what firm was she at? Oh, it did not say that. Oh, okay. None of those details are in there because I don't I'm thinking you should go on, uh, go on her LinkedIn and find out where she was working. <laughs> I'm not going on her LinkedIn or her OnlyFans page. There you go. Let's see the article. Yeah, it does not say uh, which firm she was at. But again, it's this like, how do we can't keep anybody in the county? That's right. I'm going to go back to some follow up to our story last week about the EY staffer in Australia who died after going to a work event, coming back to work, killed herself. He had two, two suicides now that we're talking about. Going Concern is reporting that EY staffers feel left in the dark after the death of their colleague last weekend. That's the headline. Apparently, EY has only sent out one email about it and it really hasn't given them any information. News.com.au understands that since Sunday morning's tragedy, staff have only received one email which stated that a team member had died at the Sydney building over the weekend. During a pre-scheduled firm-wide meeting on Wednesday, employees say the women's death was not addressed. They brushed over the incident at the start of the call and then went on to talk about the EY merger or demerger for the remaining 50 minutes, one employee told the anonymous social media page Aussie Corporate. Another current staffer said, there's a black cloud looming over us at EY, and it's been so odd because people are skirting around the event. They're either saying it's so sad or just aren't addressing it at all. And I think at this point, EY has actually spent more words addressing the death of the queen. I was uh, just going to, I just pulled that quote up. Yes, their I was going to say, like, that's interesting. They did a whole quote about the death of the queen, but not their actually employee. Not their own employee, yeah. Goes to, uh, you know, like priorities guys, right? 
KPMG is in the news. I'm going to just stick with the big four since we're there. Uh, KPMG has been accused of an appalling audit that allowed a U.S.-listed Chinese biotechnology company to carry out a brazen 400 million accounting fraud. The Hong Kong High Court has this case now. What did they fail to do is the question here. Um, And we know from our coverage of Wirecard and Luck and Coffee that sometimes there are some obvious things that auditors don't do, like confirm bank account balances. Get bank statements. Get bank statements. This is um, according to the liquidator of China Medical Technologies. They said that that KPMG failed to question a large related party transaction by the group, uh, this technology company, in 2006 when it acquired a Chinese diagnostics business worth $155,000 for $176 million. So they acquired a business worth 155000 allegedly, for $176 million, and KPMG didn't question that. And they are suing KPMG on the grounds that its losses uh, at China Medical flowed from its negligent audit work, which gave the company accounts a clean bill of health in 2007 and 2008. It's asking for as much as $454 million to cover allegedly misappropriated cash and dividends that were paid out to shareholders, while the company was operating under a negligent audit plus interest. So who, who is suing then? So it's the liquidator of the liquidators. this bankrupt okay. company. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so the, the creditors, after everybody. right? Yeah. yeah the, so the liquidator's like, hey, and, you, and, you didn't help protect the investors, which and, is and the I mean, job of the auditor. This is common, right? Like a co- if a company goes under for fraud, who do you go after? If the auditors didn't, you know, ask didn't do their due diligence. You go after then companies that have 20 to 30 to $40 billion of revenue a year. Exactly. I was reading, I don't know if it was a comment on this story or another story. I think it was a different story, but it was basically somebody saying that like the big four audit firms are essentially like insurance companies in that they, well, they buy their own insurance, right? And then yep. if, if a company goes bankrupt and is due to like an audit, it's related to an audit failure, uh, you know, and the auditors failed, then like they just get a big payout from the insurance company that insures the audit firm. <laughs> so, so like, as long as like the incentive is if you if you're an auditor, right, a big four auditor, it's like to do a good enough job where your liability is not going to be bigger than your insurance policy, which is a very like it, it can be a very low bar, right? And that's I think part of the reason why audit quality is is so poor in a lot of cases. Like it's just do the bare minimum is how we incentivize things here. You have any more big four? The PCAOB, the auditors of the auditors, said that uh, the overall quality of broker-dealer audits improved in 2021, but the they see room for improvement. <laughs> Listen to this. Of 92 broker-dealer audits reviewed in the PCAOB's annual report, 49% had identified deficiencies. But hey, that's an improvement because it's down from 61% in 2020. So just just about half of these broker dealer audits had deficiencies. It's an improvement. I mean, we'll, it's we'll take it's an improvement. Um, and and meanwhile, I had something about how like PwC actually released some internal data on their own audits. Yeah, that they they see their own audit quality improving. They actually reported, and now of course it's PwC reporting on itself. They said that yeah. they had a one hundred percent internal inspection compliance rate last year. And 99.3% of its reports on internal controls over financial reporting were not reissued or withdrawn. So, hey, that's a lot better than 
when uh, so, so that's like a, a marketing press release then this is why yeah yeah like, this. like look how good we are yeah look how high quality our audits are so only one of their 52 audits reviewed in 2020 by pcob had part one a deficiencies so and how then, many audits would you say they do a year in general so they audit about? 700 sec registrants and it represents and then the pcob PCAOB is only reviewing a small percentage of those. Yeah, so they PCAOB looked at 52 in 2020 and 60 okay. the year before. Now, the year before, 18 so out of the, the 60. the 600 could be total crap, they just, and they could have just got lucky. Like, we don't know. It's yeah, sample, I mean, but... theoretically, right? If it's a sample, it's a, it's a then, you know, like, that's really yeah. good, right? If only one in 52 had deficiencies. But, but there was something interesting in this story. So this was on Accounting Today, uh, and... The PwC also released some other information. They say that they have been making efforts to expand diversity in the firm. 48% of the employees are women now. 39% are racially and ethnically diverse individuals. But among partners, 24% are women and 18% are racially and ethnically diverse. So I guess that's better because I think in the past it was like 20% women partners. Now it's 24%, but still only 18% racially and ethnically diverse. It's a long way, decade plus, 20 years to change this. And then there's also something here about how many hours they're working. So so remember how we talked last week about how uh, audit partners are working like a lot? Uh, oh, yeah, because the partners used to not work. They'd be on their boat and all the employees would be working. And now at, why become a partner if I'm going to have to still work so much? Right. And that was a, a listener who wrote a message. Um, and he was a, a former Anderson partner. And, and he said that's part of the reason like people don't want to you know do the career path anymore is that it used to be like partners had good work-life balance. Now they actually work more. And that's what this says from PwC. This report says that partners and managing directors are putting in an average of 349 annual hours in excess of 40 hours per week. But like everybody below them, it's less. Directors and managers work 295 excess hours. Senior associates work an extra 256 hours. And associates work another 220 hours on average. So it's actually like backwards the way it should be so and that's about what almost a hour a day well now now here's the thing day. though when you're collecting timesheet data you gotta you gotta understand like are they actually reporting all the hours are they eating uh, the hours uh, right yes, yes, so, yes. so it rounds down yeah. <laughs> right so like it's probably way more than this right because people always eat hours like that's the biggest problem in accounting with timesheets is people eat hours not that they bill extra uh and so like i i, I don't know if i'd trust this but it does seem to support this idea that partners and you know, managing directors don't have the work-life balance you might expect. Like, if you work that hard to get to that point, like, why are you working so many hours? So anyway. It seems like if, I, if it was a big floor firm, I want to recruit younger accountants to come work for my firm, I'd figure out how to get the partners bragging about how they only work 30 hours a week. Yeah. That would really give people, like, I want to work for that firm one day. Yeah, I, right? I, or yeah. I want to become, I want to do the partner track, right? Anyway, they say that they're investing a billion dollars on automation technology. Well, they call it the next generation of auditing. Uh, to helpfully, I guess, improve that. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is built for accountants, and with 30 plus years of payroll experience, they can be the payroll partner you can always rely on. They offer a dashboard to manage all your clients in one place, and when I say manage, I probably should say balance that fine line between control and delegation. OnPay lets you keep 100% control, you can delegate payroll to someone at your firm, or hand off payroll duties to your client. But no matter who runs payroll, OnPay always takes care of all tax payments and filings, even local filings. 
And with integrations with QuickBooks Online, Xero, and QuickBooks Desktop, you can use OnPay across your entire client base regardless of the accounting GL they are using. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts or a rev share, and a dedicated support team of in-house payroll experts who will do all the heavy lifting. From setting up your dashboard to adding your clients and their employees, they'll even enter any prior wages to make it easy to switch. If you're looking for a great product with great support to match, check out OnPay. To learn more about switching your clients to the award-winning OnPay payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. OnPay, switch to better payroll. I have a crypto thing, a related thing. So All right. this, was, this comes out of a, a report that was done by payments.com and BitPay. BitPay is a, uh, you can pay, like a, if I have a website, people want to buy a Cloud Exchange podcast shirt, they can pay with Bitcoin. through Bit, BitPay is kind of a, a service, a shopping cart service. They have some uh, survey, which has a ridiculous name, paying with cryptocurrency, can crypto at checkout become a profit center for merchants? Like That doesn't matter. But they have some interesting data in here about the average consumer and what they have, and they bucketed them into three buckets. You have people that do not live paycheck to paycheck. You have people that live paycheck to paycheck but are comfortable. And then you have people that live to paycheck to paycheck but have great dif- they have difficulty. And what they've discovered through this is people that are paycheck to paycheck are the most willing to invest in crypto. That seems like, like it should be the opposite. <laughs> yes. And so crypto is accounting for people that are paycheck to paycheck. It's accounting for uh, or that are not paycheck to paycheck. It's 2.1% of their portfolios. People that are paycheck to paycheck, but they're comfortable with it, it's 2.3%. But people that are di- having difficulties paycheck to paycheck, they have 3.6% of their portfolio in crypto. Oh, man. And that's so all... it just kind of proves like these, the, and we, we've talked about this months ago, but the whole crypto Ponzi scheme versus other Ponzi schemes, if you think about Bernie Madoff, he went after other rich people. Yeah. Right. This Ponzi scheme is targeting the lowest of the financial ladder. Yeah. That's, may, I think, what's you, worst about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's so easy. It's so easy. And we saw that in a story on Cointelegraph.com. The headline is far too easy. Crypto researchers fake Ponzi raises 100,000 in hours. So this crypto uh, researcher whose username uh, is Fat Man Terra, he set up a fake investment scheme as an experiment and to teach people a lesson about blindly following the investment advice of influencers. He has an account on Twitter with over 100,000 followers and he told his followers on September 5th that he had, quote, received access to a high-yield BTC farm, unquote, by an unnamed fund and said that people could message him if they wanted in on the yield farming opportunity. And uh, there were a ton of people calling this out on Twitter as a scam, but then he still managed to raise $100,000 worth of BTC, Bitcoin, from the initial post on Twitter and on Discord within a span of two hours. And then, of course, he returned the money and he told everyone, guys, you just got scammed. But he, he says, wow. he says, quote, uh, this is his Twitter post, quote, I want to send a clear, strong message to everyone in the crypto world. Anyone offering to hand you free money is lying. It simply doesn't exist. Your favorite influencer selling you quick money, trading, coaching, or offering a golden investment opportunity is scamming you. We live in unfortunate times. Brazen and doxed grifters like Do Kwan roam free, scamming people constantly. 
99% of crypto projects are scams designed to enrich their founders. And bless their hearts, crypto bros are far too gullible and trusting for their own good. In, in this... This reads for initial clients. Yes, your bank account might be paying you under 1% interest if it's paying you interest at all. Yeah. Yes, you could get in the market. It's great. Maybe every seven years, you could double your money. But to just get 10% on your cash, guaranteed, I got actually a LinkedIn guy send an email to me about investing. And his pitch was, you're only getting less than 1% of your bank account. But if you invest in this and, and you, the money can be held in DeFi, crypto, whatever, whatever the F he's selling me, 89% yeah, return. <laughs> We're live, 89% David. 89% return. We're live. So, yeah. but 89, I might, you don't, in this world, you don't get free money, people. It does not exist. You have to bust your ear and work for money. Like, it, uh. actually, the only free money there is is create a Bitcoin scam and, or a crypto scam and you get free money. That's probably the only free money that exists. I know. A, a crypto scam. But unfortunately, we see people doing this, getting into this. Uh, and Joshua, who's on the live stream, said, unfortunately, I saw two CPAs joining the scam trend, specifically with highly questionable tax return tactics. And I think it's up to us as accountants to help protect our clients, right? And that's one thing that we can do is educate them about this stuff, right? Like you said, David, if the return, if the yield is too good to be true, it is too good to be to true. Be true. That's every Ponzi scheme, right? They all have yields that are just completely unrealistic. And, uh, and then, and arguably, like at the highest levels of profession, the AICPA has helped push crypto. Oh yeah, down people's throats, and they have people speaking to people with huge holdings in crypto that are constantly saying how great crypto is. Yeah, and partnering like, with crypto companies, right, to create products to sell. I mean, I haven't seen um, the ASCPA come out and say, we advise you to advise your clients to stop buying crypto. Like, there is no statement of that. No. You. No. So, uh, I don't know. It's crazy. Well, and, and meanwhile, it's weird because even though Gary Gensler recently wrote, uh, he wrote a, a op-ed on Wall Street Journal talking about how the SEC treats crypto like the rest of the capital markets and basically saying that, uh, his his main point was, if it looks like a security and it talks like a security and it walks like a security, it is a security. That's what he said in this Wall Street Journal article. That's that test. I forgot what that test is called. Um, well, he's basically I tweeted about it once. There was one that you know the test that came out like long after the uh, SEC was established, or not. I mean, back in the what 30s, 40s, 50s. There's that test, but he's basically broadening it. He's saying like, look, that test, you know, that's old. If, if if what you're selling is like a security, then, you know, if, if, if it's marketed like a security, then it is a security, essentially. Yeah. But the thing is, the SEC doesn't have like the, the, the power, they don't have the teeth to enforce this stuff. They can only go after the biggest players. So they've gone after, you know, BlockFi, it looks like they are going after Coinbase. But again, it's so easy to set up a crypto scam, it's so easy to set up an exchange, they can be beyond US borders. Like there's, there's, they just don't even have the, the capacity, the ability to stop this stuff. But meanwhile, you have people in Congress, you know, who are like opposing any additional regulation on this stuff. And so I think the scams are gonna continue for a long time, right? And I don't know, maybe the public will just eventually educate itself, or, but, but I don't know. I feel like there are there's just stories of people losing large amounts. Right, yeah. 20 grand, 30 grand, 100 grand, their kids' college education, whatever it might be. But I feel like a lot of this grift is 
they took somebody for 500 here, 500 here, 500 here, and it all starts to add up. So like nobody's getting screwed enough, but they're all getting screwed a little bit. <laughs> and that just adds up. And yeah. th- th- nobody's going to defend a bunch of people that got taken for 500 bucks. That's right. Where do we go from here? I got a listener email to read. That's a good transition. You've got mail. There we go. Time for our listener mail segment. Ron Baker emailed us. Hi, Blake. Just listen to your recent show. I agree with your dad. PPP and student loan forgiveness are apples and oranges. PPP was lawfully and duly passed by Congress, the only branch that can authorize the spending of money per the Constitution. Student loan relief was done via executive decision, which the president does not have authority to do. Even his own DOE and Nancy Pelosi said this. I think it's an impeachable offense. And yes, I thought the same thing when Trump found the $6 billion to spend on the wall from the defense budget. But $400 billion is quite a bit more than $6 billion, but that doesn't really matter. Stealing 10 is not better than stealing 100 PPP was, in effect, recompense for a government takings, Fifth Amendment, for shutting down businesses. Student loans was a payoff to an interest group. But I also agree with you. Both programs were awful, and the federal government has no business doing either. Have a great Labor Day, Ron. <laughs> so I'm so honored. Thank you, Ron, for writing in. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for um, listening. Thank you for That's listening, amazing. yeah. Um, so, so, like, I, that is something we didn't discuss uh, about the student loan forgiveness is, like, whether or not this is even legal. And I do find it kind of crazy that, like, that is legal. Like, I feel like it can't be. Right? How the executive does not have the power of the purse. That's Congress. Congress has that. And so, like, I don't think that the Biden administration should be able to do this. Right. And Congress authorized PPP. They didn't authorize student loan forgiveness. So, yeah. like, if this goes through, that's just ridiculous. Right. But I do think that most voters will not understand the difference between PPP being intended to pay back businesses for shutdowns versus like student loan forgiveness. Not no. being that way, because all they see is they see money, lots of money that went to certain groups. And that's what is basically happening here. It's like blatant, you know, interest group handouts. And PPP, as I we agree. said in the show, it was intended. It was intended to do what it did. But really what ended up happening is, um, and I think a lot of us know many stories of people who got PPP money who didn't need it. And then they used it to their benefit, right? Like, and... We saw this in the capital markets. When stock prices go up, people take their PPP money, they invest it, right? The prices go up, inflation goes up, right? Like, there was more PPP money than was needed. And we can debate whether or not that was good or bad. And, you know, it probably would have been worse if we hadn't done it and all that stuff. But, like, it's just what happened. And it's it's the perception of it, not the reality of it that matters in politics. Yeah, I, I guess I can agree on this argument that it's not the executive branch's decision on this. Like, it was an overreach of power. But I think like just the spirit of it, like I'm kind of at the point, like I don't really care. Like the airlines got theirs before. The airlines will get it again. The auto industry got bailed out. Like like who ca- at this point, like who cares? Again, kind of what I said in that episode of like, why not the fraudsters? We should have fraudster forgiveness. Like we should just, <laughs> like everybody, everybody's getting their piece. Yeah. And it's like, who cares? Like who cares? Uh, That's kind of well, my opinion on this. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks. I was on the FreshBooks website this week and saw this blog post, Five FreshBooks Features Accountants Love. 
So I figured let's share it with the Cloud Accounting Podcast audience. So without further ado, number one, in-app estimates and proposals. With deep customization, you can create bespoke proposals for clients and even capture their e-signatures. Number two, pre-populated chart of accounts. Help you cut down on your setup times and it helps clients feel confident when classifying their expenses. Three, app integrations. Square, Dropbox, HubSpot, G Suite, Gusto, and Zoom. Time tracking. Allows your clients to take charge of their own time tracking and payroll and make invoicing a breeze. Checkout links. You can require and collect payments up front to eliminate the need to chase clients that owe you money. If you want to learn about the benefits of working better together with FreshBooks, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash FreshBooks. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash F-R-E-S-H-B-O-O-K-S. Shall we go to app news? Yeah. So Trinet, you're familiar with Trinet or you've used them or it seems like if you work at enough companies, somebody's doing Trinet and you get paid by Trinet. <laughs> yeah, I've been a Trinet employee or they've been my employer of record. They acquire lots of companies. They're and big. It's, it's a little, to my opinion of them, it's a little disconnected of an experience. But when you have the foothold that they have, you have the ear of the small businesses and the small business owners. So they've made a purchase. They are purchasing Claris R&D. Claris is one of those fintech companies that automates the uh, R&D tax credit process for SMBs and then takes a percentage of the off the top. Oh, so yeah. If, kinda, if, if Trinet already has some payroll data and they mix it in with Claris, they're going to proactively probably be pushing this onto every small business owner they have. Mm-hmm. And I'm still mixed on the whole R&D tax credit thing because it does feel like, I'm not saying it's scammy, but like I saw TV commercials on this now. Oh, through. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, call us. You, you have this money just sitting here, free money. And, and it's it's turned into, the, and you just said in the new Inflation Reduction Act, they've raised the amount you even get on this. So we're going to see even more of this this push on small businesses to apply for this. Yeah, yeah. We actually got a voicemail from an R&D tax credit shop. I would love to play that for you. Like Let's a see. sales? A sales? Call. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have gotten these now, right? So let's see if I can, I don't know if this will work. Uh, I'm going to try to play it. It's an M4A file, and I don't know if my pl- our platform is going to let us do it. Maybe no. we'll, Blake, that's in with that. I can't see the chat, but if you're uh, watching us live, have you been targeted or are you seeing a, a huge amount of marketing around the R&D credit? I just think that, that there's a lot of legit R&D tax credit shops, and then there's a lot of illegitimate ones that are just putting these applications together using shoddy data and they're getting a piece of it. And there's billions so and billions of dollars. Who's going to be liable on this? Is it going to be the small business owner who they thought they were working with an expert? And then the like, small business owner, the one who's going to get in trouble for this if it's questionable? Or is it the company? Should your should the accountant getting it be, be in the middle on this? If you ever get audited, that's the thing though, right? Like IRS doesn't have the resources or at least it historically hasn't had the resources to audit. So nobody's getting audited. It's it, you know your your odds so will are very low. this be the low. next big? We're going to discover tons of fraud in this, like three years down the road. Like, is this the next? It feels like there's just too many companies getting into it too fast. Yeah, and there's too much marketing the the free money. It's really been marketed as free money, free money, free money, free yeah. money. Yeah, which is the debt. This is how Ponzi schemes work. Right? <laughs> like, yeah, like, is this this going to be the next big fraud discovery on so the show two years from now? It's just like when. When the rate of return 
that you're promised is too high to be true. It's not right. Just yeah. the, it's the same idea. And when, when you see all these firms cropping up, doing aggressive marketing uh, and promising things that aren't possible, then that means there's going to be fraud. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a smoking, it's not a smoking gun. It's, it's something like that, that comes before it, right? It's the canary in the coal mine, if you will. So, so should we be going for this? Because like I'm building out software that's being built here in the US. Yeah. It's new, new, yeah. new functionality being invented by us for the earmark pod, for earmark podcast or earmark media. Yeah. Right. Like we probably should, should. We be applying for this. Probably. Um, uh, well, I'll have to look into it's it. It's free money, Blake. Like we should be. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by our R and D tax credit return. Well, speaking of uh, marketing offers that are too good to be true, did you hear about Credit Karma? Credit Karma. I think I saw some some blurb fly by. What happened yeah. there? Well, so Credit Karma is owned by Intuit, so we like to talk about it, right? Uh, the FTC has ordered Credit Karma to pay its users three million dollars because it was telling people in marketing messages that you're pre-approved when they clearly were not, and then they were subsequently denied following a credit check. So apparently Credit Karma is saying that, uh, you know, they're denying the allegations, but we're settling it just to be done with it. And only 1,500 people have ever contacted us stemming from anything related to this. But that to me seems like a lot, right? Because if 1,500 people bothered to contact you, how many people were harmed? It probably was 100 times more, right? So just at least an example. 60 to one. Yeah, at least yeah. 60 to one, if not 100 to one. Yeah. But the thing is, like, the penalty for this, right, is is probably like a rounding error for Credit Karma. So there, you know, this is this is just aggressive marketing, right? Same thing with, uh, and, yeah, go ahead. So I look at this and I'm like, what's the game here, right? Because at some level, some part of me is like, this is why I don't believe in, like, big data is all bullshit. Like, this is why you see the same Facebook ads for something you already bought. Like, it's just the big data game. Because in theory... Credit Carmen and Intuit have all this information, all this big data. If anybody knows if you're going to be approved for a credit card or not, it should be Credit Karma at this point, right? <laughs> they should be experts at this. Yeah. So, so that's weird. So then the question is why? Do they get a kickback from the credit credit card companies, like like a lead? Like, hey, for everybody who applies, we kick you back $100? Like, like why, why did this happen? It just doesn't mm. make sense to me. Good questions uh, that we don't and have again, time I agree that to answer. See, three million seems kind of low. Yeah, um, because if that's who's going to stop doing this. Yeah, um, and they settled for that, so they must have made a hundred million from the credit card companies. That's probably right. right. Uh, here's a story that caught my attention: Accountants try to avoid awkward conversations with clients, and it costs them. And I'm putting this in the uh, app news segment because it's a uh, survey. It's the results of a survey by Ignition the practice management software provider uh, who partnered with YouGov. They polled 506 decision makers in accounting and bookkeeping firms but with between one and 50 employees. And there's some interesting data here about awkward conversations. Nearly all, 94% of the accountants and bookkeepers said they have encountered an awkward client situation in their practice, including 94% having to chase clients for late payments. In addition, 90% indicated they have clients who are not being billed for out-of-scope work, with 43% of respondents saying their firm just absorbs these costs and work, while 88% experience clients being sent proposals or engagement letters with errors two to three times a month on average. Uh, and 88% of the respondents in the U.S. said they've, they, they admit to delaying or avoiding an awkward conversation with a client 
in order to improve or maintain the client relationship commonly, a lot of them are worried about the client's negative response or reaction, like 39%, almost a third, over a third, lack the information needed about the agreed upon scope. And then 34% admit that they lack the skills to negotiate with clients. So they just avoid talking to them. And then they, this is the number that really shocked me, is like the amount who admit to writing off invoices due to avoiding conversations. 38%, 38% of accountants and bookkeepers say they've just written off an invoice so that they didn't have to have an awkward conversation with a client. And that's in the past 12 months. Right. So it feels like, like a lot of this, if you have your ducks in order, you have a good process, you're, you're, you're sending out quotes, you have a way you're collecting payments, or if you're, you know, you have on a monthly plan, we're doing auto ACH withdrawal. If you have a system in place, you're going to normally naturally have a lot less awkward situations to have awkward conversations about, and you shouldn't have to write off as much. So, so but so yeah. is this like an indication of people just not running their phones very well? Is that the, this is not, this is not a reflection of people's skill sets to have these conversations. It's like people just not running their firms well. Well, and Brian Strag said, uh, 38% is too low. He thinks it's higher. Um, I, you know, I, here's my recommendation is hire somebody in your firm who likes having awkward conversations, right? Uh, we, we CPAs, accountants and bookkeepers, we shouldn't be doing this because we like to be the caretakers. We don't want to have those difficult conversations. So like get somebody in your firm who's not on this wavelength and who likes to be aggressive and get them so you to, need to do have it. A rainmaker and an undertaker. Both on yes, an undertaker. I like an that. Undertaker. Finders, minders, grinders, and undertakers. <laughs> um, yeah, you need somebody who can do that. And, uh, you know, like maybe you can find like a good admin person who is happy to do collections work. I honestly think that's like one of the things that really, I mean, you could, ideally you avoid having collections in the first place, but you're always going to have conversations about that. And yeah, one of the one of the good pieces of advice I've heard many times is, like especially with pricing, because we tend to be too nice. It's get somebody else to do your pricing, or at least to validate it. And if Ron if Baker you're, said that, get your get your spouse to yes. price your time. Right. So if you're solo, right, who do you do? Like who do you, who 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 looks at your pricing? Get your spouse to do it because they're going to be way more aggressive, right? And they're going to value your time because it's their livelihood. <laughs> you know, like it too. Yeah. Like maybe that's a good option, right? Get your spouse to call up these clients and follow up with them. Yeah, I'm trying to think, is there anything else in here that's really good? Uh, 92% said they experienced late payments. 31% of invoices were paid after the due date. Oh, there's an estimate here about out-of-scope work. So out-of-scope work, like we all suffer from that, right? We know we're losing money from that. Yeah. On average, the estimate is $67,000 per year of lost uh, revenue from out-of-scope work. And that's like pure profit, if you think about it. Pure profit. So it's 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 not just like a percentage of your revenue. It's like, you know, if, if you're making a couple hundred thousand dollars as a partner, that could materially impact your livelihood, right? If you were collecting for that out-of-scope work. And so then the question is, well, how do you get your staff and yourself to have the conversation about increasing the price, about paying for the out-of-scope work? And another suggestion is often it's, it's like incentivize your staff. Give them a piece of any additional scoping, right? Any revenue that comes out of like a additional project, like that's another possibility. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah, otherwise, because if not, it's just more work. So, so that'll actually make your staff proactive when they're working with a client, like, oh, the client should do this. It's a really good idea. It's going to take us some work and the client some work, but why are you going to bring that up if you're not going to collect on it, right? Or bill for it properly? Yeah, exactly. So and why, it's, 
Yeah. If you're not incentivized, why would you bring it up? Yeah. So I thought that was a really good survey with a lot of interesting data. You can find that link in the show notes. So Square and Sage announced that there's a Square point of sale integration with Sage Accounting, mm-hmm. which I I guess I would have assumed Square would have already in game, like been integrated in the past. I don't know. Maybe it has. Maybe it's different. And But digging under the covers, I did finally find an article that was actually in the true press release. They're actually working with Amica under the covers. So it's powered by Amica. So Amica built the pipes between Amica's is similar to like a one SaaS that Intuit purchased or a, um, like a Zapier. Like they, they play the middleman between you know, these, these apps to move mm-hmm. the data around. Uh, but that's looks like, what, and basically it's going to automate the entry of the Square transaction data into Sage Accounting, keeping people's books up to date and uh, accurately synced through the uh, daily sync. Um, and this is going to be released to United Kingdom, Ireland, and Canadian mar- markets. Yeah, yeah. So that's important. It's, it's Canada, UK, and Ireland. Now, are they already yep. integrated in the US or is it just, we don't get that? It, <sighs> Sage is hard. Like, I, I only really grasp Sage when it's, Sage intact. It's like feels like very black and white. There's I, like a product offering there, what's there, but the rest yeah. of the Sage products, they threw these words around like say the Sage accounting and is that really the old Sage 300? Is that the old Sage 100? Like it, it, it's very hard to keep track of. Yeah. Um, I, I wish there was like like a spreadsheet somewhere that had like all the Sage products, their historical <laughs> names, what they are now, what countries they work in. I don't know if this exists, but <laughs> I can't do it in my head. That's I can only keep track of Sage intact really well. That's uh, the one I nailed down. Uh, QuickBooks has introduced a new 1099 solution for contractor payments. It's called simply contractor payments. It is now available as a standalone offering or combined with a subscription to QuickBooks Online or QuickBooks Online Payroll. So it will, does it connect, does it collect the W9 information? That's the thing that we all want to know. Yes. So using the new solution, contractors can complete their W9 and provide bank deposit details themselves and take advantage of a built-in format validation powered by the QuickBooks ecosystem, which automates and pre-populates content. Uh, So they can also set up their own direct deposit, allowing them to get payment for their work as soon as the next day. And all the payments automatically sync with QuickBooks Online. So that will be very welcome to folks who are in the QuickBooks Online ecosystem that do 1099s for clients because- So what did they do? Did they spin out like a small version of QuickBooks that's below like simple start. That's just like a list of employees and you're pumping money. Well, I think it's just contractors it, and then you're paying them. It's just a tool. Yeah. You can use it independently, I guess. And in, in... it's $15 a month includes 20 contractors and you can add $2 a month for each additional one above the 20, but it looks like it's a standalone thing. Be interesting. It works to... standalone. Yeah. Is there any screenshots? I'm clicking on the website now. That's to sign up. I don't want to sign up. Interesting. You can let us know next week what you think if you try it out. Uh, let's see. we got a few more minutes here, five more minutes in our stream. So, oh, here's a good one. France catches tax-dodging swimming pool owners with AI. <laughs> so France taxes swimming pools. And not surprisingly, people will you know fail to declare that they have a swimming pool and uh, you know will not pay the tax on it. So using satellite imagery and a new AI tool, they've discovered 20,000 undeclared swimming pools, enabling the tax office to collect 10 million euros, which is, I guess, approximately 10 but million. did you see who they partnered with on this? No, who? 
It is Google. Google? Google. I, I, let me Google this and make sure. <laughs> I don't want to just assume this. I'm pretty sure I heard it was Google. It was Google. Google. Oh, yeah. Cap France. Gemini or Cap Gemini and Alphabet Inc.'s Google were hired for parts of the project. So they're going to pay 24 million euros to these two companies. And the expected income gains mean the measure will be profitable from the second year. So that's innovation. It's the same and French government that is trying to, that is fined Google to break them up and all this antitrust <laughs> stuff. And like, well, now in exchange, if you help us produce revenue, maybe we can offset this. Like, it just, it's yucky. It's just yucky. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like it. Um, here's a follow-up on payments, Apple Pay. Apparently, Apple Pay has become really, really popular, and it took a long time. So back in 2016, Apple Pay was like activated on 10% of iPhones, let's say. That in 2022 is now all the way up to over 70%, approaching, yeah, 75%. That's really amazing, David. Apple Pay. 75% of iPhones, like people are using it or act, have activated it and can use it now. Like this is, this is, companies have been trying to create a cardless phone-based payment system and Apple did it. Nobody else has been able to do this. I wonder None what of the, the numbers are on for, for Google as well. Because um, I mean, essentially it's, it's exact same functionality, right? It's just on your Google phone, you're doing the same thing on Android, just tap my phone and pay. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Like this, I, I remember being a kid and like, there was like commercials about this, right? Yeah. Like it's finally here. Like like this whole, like I have this crazy device in my pocket and I just tap it places to pay for things. So you're, you're right. It's and, finally and, here. And 90% of retailers across the US now take Apple Pay. The number when the service was introduced was 3%. So I think Apple's going to win this battle. And this is what keeps people in the Apple ecosystem is now you've got Apple Pay, you get used to using it. You don't want to switch to Android. And now you maybe you can't, you know, so like, like we're getting to the point almost now, if they can just get the digital IDs to work, which I still haven't gotten my Arizona ID to work in my Apple wallet because there's some sort of like ID verification thing I'm failing. I think it's because I'm a relatively new resident. That's part of the reason I suspect. But if I could just get my ID to work in Apple wallet, then I wouldn't have to carry my wallet anymore because almost everywhere I go takes Apple pay. And if it doesn't, What'll usually happen is that somebody working there will say, All right, just Apple pay me ten bucks and I'll give you cash and then you can pay. Heather Smith said, I found it so hard to use Google Pay in the USA. Many businesses refused it. I use it one hundred percent of the time in Australia. I can't believe those usage stats from my limited time there. Well, so this is not Google Pay, this is Apple Pay that we're talking about that that works. I don't know how many retailers accept Google Pay. David, if you've got that info, that would be interesting to know. I have not seen that, but yeah. um, I, I think there is some risk of putting our, your eggs in one basket all onto one device, all under control. Do you see what happened? And we can close the show on this. Do you see what happened in Colorado? No, no, tell me. So everybody, you know, everybody has their little smart thermostats now, right? And it's it's been hot. We've been in this huge heat wave the last, over the, the holiday weekend. Apparently, some customers unknowingly opted in to get a hundred dollar enrollment credit and twenty five dollars a year to give up control of their thermostat. Oh, so you had wait, thousands yeah. of people in Colorado, twenty two thousand people, basically their thermostat changed to seventy eight degrees for several hours, and they could not adjust it down. Like they had no idea they've lost control of the devices in their house. Like I will not buy smart anything. Everything I have is dumb. I would just refuse. So, it's crazy. So I signed up for something similar to this in here in the Phoenix area, uh, yeah. APS 
has a program. If you have a Nest thermostat, you can connect your thermostat to their systems. And then they have the ability to like adjust it during critical times, like during, you know, certain times of the day when there's a lot of demand. And uh, if you do that, you get a one-time signup bonus and then annual credit. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, a hundred dollar signup bonus and then $50 annual credit or something like that. And I was like, all right, sure, whatever. I did it. And then of course it would, it, like what they promised to do was like pre-cool your house in the morning or ahead of the, ahead of the surge and then turn it off so that your house, like it would balance out their power demand requirements. Yeah. But it never worked that way because it would like pre-cool my house or try to anyway, but it was already so hot that like when they turned off the thermostat, it wasn't cooler. It was right. Cause you're here in Arizona, your AC just starts running at like 9am and just keeps going throughout the whole day. Right. So it didn't work like it was supposed to. Now, luckily I was able to adjust it myself, but to unenroll from the program, I had to call a call center. Oh, it's like AOL. <laughs> yeah. I could not turn <laughs> it off. Like I could not, AOL. I could not. And that scares me, right? The fact that Google which own, you know writes the thermostat software or whatever wouldn't allow me to disconnect it myself. I'm never setting up for anything. Do you have do you have uh, like Nest doorbells? I have. What a... They lock you in your house. <laughs> and then you don't get to leave. <laughs> that'll be next, Blake. That'll be next. So. Well, David, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everybody who joined us on our inaugural live stream. Heather, Brian, Randy, Joshua. I think that's everybody that commented. Really appreciate you having uh, having you here. It was fun. So, uh, listeners, if you're listening to us on your podcast player, you can also catch us live on LinkedIn. I think we're going to keep doing this. Uh, just t- testing it out. See how it goes. I love getting the live feedback. David, if people want to reach you online, LinkedIn's a good place. Where else? Uh, I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. Super easy to find. And I'm at Blake T. Oliver. Send us your voice mails. You can email us cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. That is cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. Let us know your thoughts or attach a voice memo to the conversation, to the thread, and we will play it. We will likely play it on the air. We almost always do. Ian says, great format. Hey, thanks for joining us, Ian. That's great. Ian Crook there. Uh, Great to see you at ZeroCon as well. And, um... I guess we'll leave it at that. Have a great week, David. It's a wrap. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Do you dream of starting a bookkeeping business, but you don't know where to start? Join the Bookkeeping Biz Workshops, a live four-day workshop series hosted by Serena Shoup CPA. You'll learn where to start, what it takes, what tech to use, how to build a business, not a job, plus how to get comfortable on discovery calls. The workshops begin September 20th, so register today at bkworkshops.online. That's bkworkshops.online. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Blake, and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud, and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right. A true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. 
to subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.